This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about what could just be the most important wall you've never heard of. But before we do that, I want to give a quick plug to vote in our poll for your favorite question from our State Fair episode. I'll include a link to that in the show notes, and we'll probably close the voting on that about a week after this episode goes live, so make sure to get your favorite selection in. Okay, back to this wall. So this structure was built deep beneath the Mississippi River in in downtown Minneapolis 145 years ago. And this happened in the wake of one of the biggest disasters in Minneapolis history. But it continues to this day to ensure the stability of St. Anthony Falls, which is really what made Minneapolis into the industrial powerhouse it became and still is one of the biggest tourist attractions in Minneapolis. And just to add to this wall's importance, it also helps ensure that Minneapolis has uninterrupted access to the river for its drinking water. So it's a pretty important wall for a number of reasons. To give you a sense of where this is, imagine you're standing on the Stone Arch Bridge looking at St. Anthony Falls. The most recognizable feature is the concrete spillway, also known as the apron. If you had x-ray vision, you would see the wall located somewhere behind and below that spillway. We're talking about this wall today because despite its importance, its condition is largely a mystery. The vast majority of it hasn't been seen since it was built in the 1870s. And that's because it's under the riverbed, surrounded by sandstone. Our guest today, John Anfinson, has been trying to alert the public about the potential risks if this wall were to fail. He'd like to see the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which built the wall, undertake a study to figure out how the wall is holding up after all these years. I consider John one of the most credible sources about mystery. Mississippi River history. He's written extensively about it, and until his recent retirement, he was the superintendent of the National Park comprising the Mississippi River in the Twin Cities. Technically, this was not a curious Minnesota question, but John is a reader who is looking for answers and asking a lot of questions. So it fits within our show very well, and I think this topic is important enough to warrant a podcast. Before we hear from John, let's talk about how this wall works. I'm going to preface this by saying that to truly grasp this, I recommend clicking a link I will put in the show notes to an amazing graphic created by one of my very talented colleagues, Mark Boswell. This graphic really brings this whole thing to life and makes it a lot clearer. But here's the basic version. Let's start with the fact that the natural elevation drop in the river, now known as St. Anthony Falls, was actually gradually moving upstream for thousands of years before arriving in modern day downtown Minneapolis. This waterfall crept backward roughly four feet per year, and that's because water would tumble over over the river's thick limestone bed and eat away at the soft sandstone beneath it. Picture water splashing back and eroding the material at the base of a waterfall. This is what caused the limestone riverbed to fracture over all these years. And if you were to look beneath the river between Minneapolis and St. Paul, you would find large chunks of broken limestone. By coincidence, Minneapolis industrialists, the lumber millers and flour millers, they began harnessing the power of the falls for their factories just before the river had chewed up all of this limestone slab. So that slab today ends just upstream of St. Anthony Falls. And without that limestone, the falls would have just become a rapids. So the takeaway here is that this thick limestone riverbed is very important, but underneath it is this very porous material known as sandstone that can easily be 
washed away. One of these industrialists, William Eastman, wanted to bring water power to Nicollet Island, which is just upstream of the Stone Arch Bridge and St. Anthony Falls today. So he commissioned a tunnel through the sandstone underneath the river. And I'm going to let John pick it up from here. We recorded this interview in July while sitting at a picnic table in Father Hennepin Park, which is just beside St. Anthony Falls. He was going to build a mill on Nicollet Island, and he would drop a shaft and put a turbine in it on Nicollet Island, and then water would run through that and out the tail race, which ran all the way down under Hennepin Island. 1869, October 4th, he had reached Nicollet Island. He was right there, and water started leaking into the tunnel the morning of October 4th, the Monday. Workers had just come in from the weekend, and by noon, the workers were forced out of the tunnel. Water was coming in so fast. By the next morning, October 5th, the water had scoured a hole under the limestone at the end of Nicollet Island that was 16 feet deep and up to 90 feet wide, and the riverbed collapsed into it. And workers quickly came in, people from the area, and built a raft and floated it out over the hole and then put a whole bunch of stuff on it and sucked it right to the river bottom. And then another hole opened up just down from it. And then another one, and then another one. And they kept doing this triage of trying to float a raft over the hole and cover it with debris to create a plug, kind of. And by the end of the, the day of October 5th, they had it pretty much plugged. But they're trying to figure out what happened here. And then October 20th, another huge hole opened right in the middle between Hennepin and Nicollet Island, and more water poured down that and scoured more of the river underneath the limestone. So what was happening was there were many breaks, many scours, and the Corps realized that the limestone was becoming honeycombed underneath it. And the only way to stop that progression from happening was to build a wall under the river, under the limestone, all the way across the Mississippi, a wall that would be 1,850 feet long. And it's pretty thick and tall too, right? So it's about six and a half feet, six feet wide at the bottom to four feet wide as it goes up. And it's about 39 feet high. It's probably the third highest dam on the whole Mississippi is under the Mississippi. It takes two years, two full years to build it from 1874 to November 24th, 1876. And so is this a success? So far. <laughs> It's 144 years old, and so far it's, it's held. Just so it's clear, what the wall is doing is blocking water from washing away sandstone beneath the river, preventing a repeat of the 1869 disaster. So keeping that sandstone intact helps keep the limestone riverbed from collapsing. So the cutoff wall helps keep the falls in place, but so does other stuff that we can actually see today, such as the concrete spillway that gives the falls its modern-day gradual slope. That spillway helps prevent erosion that would occur if the falls were a natural-looking waterfall, as it once was was and we talked about that erosion that happened. But John's got a lot of questions about how the wall is doing. So the Corps of Engineers on their dam safety website talks about how many dams are reaching their 50-year life. So that's the way Corps looks at dams. What is their project life? What's the project life of any project the Corps builds? In dams, it's usually about 50 years. This dam is 144 years old. What is its project life? And what level was it built to? We talk about levees in New Orleans. Are they built to a Category 3 level or a Category 5 level? What category is this built to? We don't know. And the, and the Corps actually in their periodic inspection reports on safety says they don't know. There's a lot of questions we just don't know about this wall. Part of the issue here is that we don't know who owns this wall that protects us from disaster every day, right? I think that's one of the biggest questions because the Corps of Engineers, you know, they've looked at this a number of times, but as part of other responsibilities. The periodic inspection reports are really about their locks and dams, but they have to look at structures others have that could affect their projects. 
So they have to look at the Horseshoe Dam that Excel Energy owns and consider could something happen there that threatens our navigation projects. But because the Corps doesn't consider the wall theirs, they haven't done a full look at it. And nobody considers it's theirs, so nobody's done a full look at everything. So is the wall being inspected? The whole wall can't be inspected. There are a few points where they could get to it, but 99% of the wall you can't inspect. So that's part of what you're raising here is that we need to know more than what we know now about the condition of all this underground stuff. I mean, how can we do that, though? I think there's new technologies possible. And one of the, and one of the reasons I really raise the issue is, you know, you think of the, the Florida condominium collapse and who knew what and when and what did they do about it? This wall may last another 144 years, but how do we know if we haven't done a good study of it and say, well, we did a good study, the wall's going to last another 144 years, come back in 144 years and look at it again. Or we'll come up with a plan to monitor it maybe every 10 years. But right now there's no monitoring plan for the whole thing. There's nobody looking at the whole complex of interconnected pieces here. One thing that's been measured from time to time is the pressure, right, of the water, and that tells you something about what effect the wall is having, basically? Well, I think what it tells you is that if you have a, a monitor above the falls and one below, they tell you basically what the pressure difference is from above to below the falls. If that pressure starts decreasing, that means the pool is probably dropping some or going down, which means there's a leak in the system. The monitoring has come and gone. That's the interesting thing, and different people have done it. The Corps of Engineers has done it in the past. Excel has done it in the past. Crown Hydro, most recently, installed some instruments to help measure pressure from above to below the dam, but they're not interested in measuring those anymore right now. So what we find is there's short spurts of people monitoring it, and they kind of discontinue it. So basically, upstream of the falls, and we've actually done a previous episode of this podcast about this very spot, there is an intake for Minneapolis water. And part of what happens at the falls, both the cutoff wall and other infrastructure is raising the level of the water upstream and making a reservoir, right? So we're saying if there's a fracture, then that could deplete the reservoir and then compromise the water systems? So if there's a simple fracture, it could leak out slowly. If you have a catastrophic event like the lower hydro station in 1987, just below St. Anthony Falls at the lower lock and dam, water got under the foundation of the lower hydro station and it collapsed fairly quickly. The, the pool drained overnight or the reservoir drained overnight. If you had an event where the upper Sandy Falls pool drained overnight, Minneapolis's water intake comes out of the river. Minneapolis has about a three-day reserve. So what would you do to restore the Minneapolis water supply? What if we had a fire and there's no water in the fire hydrants? You know, imagine a worst-case scenario, but whose responsibility is it to come in and get things under control? Right now, I don't know that there is anybody defined for that. So if we had a really good study, the outcome of the study would be in part is an emergency response plan to say, here's who's responsible for what parts of this, and here's what triggers certain actions. Let's say there was a fracture in the wall, right, which is, I guess, the prime concern here. What would that mean, and then what would be sort of the ultimate result of that, potentially? I think what you have to look at is a catastrophic event, one we didn't expect, one that began somewhere we didn't think it could happen. If you look at the... (laughs) flooding in Germany and the flooding in China. You look at the failure of the Texas power grid with the extreme cold. Look at climate change. Things are happening right now that kind of defy the scales we've been used to using. So what if one of those happens here? How fast would the falls unravel? And what would it mean if it unraveled very fast? If we had a record flood that lasted a record amount of time, what if there was a collapse? How soon could we get control of it? And how much damage would it do before we could get control of it? And then more importantly, what this study would would do in part is would say, well, who's responsible for developing a plan for such an event? So if the falls fails completely and nothing is done to save it, 
the river will start cutting down its riverbed for 30 miles upstream and create a rapids for 30 miles upstream and it will start undermining the infrastructure like bridges, Coon Rapids Dam. So the Corps says, nobody's going to let that happen, so don't worry about it. But who's the nobody? Who's going to come in and stop it? And at what point do they come in and stop it if it starts unraveling? So one of the documents we've both been reading very closely is the, there's a 2015 assessment. It's almost like writing a disaster movie. There's lots of potential options and they went through a bunch. There's four, I think four or five that they ended up with that they studied more in depth, one of which involves the cutoff wall and, and the tunnels around the wall leading to a collapse of the wall itself. And they said that it was a remote possibility, it was their term, but that they have low confidence in that. And all in all, what I'm trying to say is that the Corps has looked at this in some respect and, and thought about worst case scenarios. They feel like it's a remote possibility of that happening. What do you make of that whole study? Well, they say it's remote, but they say their confidence level is low in that decision because they said there's a lot of things they don't know that if they did know, it might change their level of concern. And then they start listing all the things they don't know. And it's quite a, quite a few things. And so it seems to me to make sense to reduce the number of uncertainties. In, in this era of climate change, in this era of major disasters, we need to prepare here. Well, and then, you know, in speaking with the Corps, one person over there in particular said that they feel like you're overstating the risk here and that it's not going, the wall's not going anywhere because there's all of this stuff around it. It's embedded in sandstone. It's got, you know, now the spillway is on top of it and different things are around it. So that it's kind of just, there's a lot of infrastructure around it. I mean, what do you make of that? I would say that if all that infrastructure had been built as part of one interconnected system with deliberateness, it would mean one thing. But it's a hodgepodge of things built by different people at different times, much of which we don't know what condition it's in. And so, you know, I think she is right that there is all this infrastructure here, but no one's looked at the whole and how it all fits together and where the weak points might be. And as I said, in a worst case scenario, we have to think it's going to happen where we don't think it's going to happen. And what if it happens where we didn't think it was going to happen? What are we going to do? All right, that's it for today's show. If you want to dig into this issue a bit more, I would suggest checking out my story on this topic that ran in the Star Tribune this August. I will link to that in the show notes. As always, we appreciate hearing from listeners by email at curious at startribune.com. Send us any feedback you have about the show, as well as any questions you want us to tackle here on Curious Minnesota. Don't forget to vote in the poll of State Fair questions. And the next time you're chatting with friends about podcasts, I hope you insist that they check out Curious Minnesota. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious.